Well, <clears throat> let me let me lead us in the prayer together. Father, there is much uh, to be concerned about in the world. And there's much to praise you for in the kingdom, your kingdom. And the two are on a consistent basis clashing. And the world says one thing and you say another. You say one thing and the world says another. And you are our hope. You are our help. And you are there for us, giving us direction and encouragement and strength. And Lord, we help that uh, we, we pray that we could recognize your hand at work in our lives, in the lives of uh, people we're praying for. And we we're thankful for Roberta's response to the medication and the treatment in the hospital that she's receiving. Pray that we continue to, you would continue to strengthen her body in this battle with cancer or be close to their family. And we pray for these friends that uh, Beth has mentioned that they're in a, a place where they need your light or they need your strength, they need your help, they need to know that you love them. We pray that you would open their ears and open their eyes to see you, love you. And Lord, I would ask that for us too. But this morning as we look into your word, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would draw our attention off of ourselves, away from our circumstances and situations, and onto you. God, that we could see you high and lifted up. We could see what you've instructed us, your promises in your word. We could hear from you and we could be encouraged. You can lift our heads and lift our hearts. We're grateful and thankful for the privilege we have and the responsibility we have to look into your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're plugging our way through there. And we're just going to look at another couple of verses this morning in our journey through. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read um, just from verse 9, but our focus this morning is on verse 10 and 11, 11 and 12, actually. So in verse 9, if you remember, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I'm just going to take this almost word for word as I was reading through. I just want to encourage just even the fact that do you know what a privilege it is to say, dear friends, 
he uses this eight times, this word, in uh, some of your translations. It's the word beloved. And that's the word it is in the Greek. And I would, it just dawned on me, I can say that to some people. I can say dear friends. And I don't know all the meaning that Peter was thinking about. And what he was thinking about is he was writing to these people who had been, he, he, I'm sure he had one time knew many of them. And they're scattered from the city in which he's still living. And so he's writing a letter to those who have been scattered. They're strangers. They're aliens. And he calls them friends, dear friends. And it is a breathtaking privilege to be able to say that to people, dear friends. And to, to be able to say that and to have somebody call you friends. And we're in a growing relationship with one another. And we want to continue to recognize that. But he uses the term in verse 12 of chapter 4, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, 2 Peter 3, 14, 2 Peter 3, 17. It seems like he writes his first letter and then he says, uh, little children, dear children, beloved children, dear friends. And as he gets to the close of the second letter, he can't say enough. His affection just keeps pouring out. And you know that if you're if you're going to say goodbye to somebody who's a dear friend, you just don't want it to come to an end. So he greets dear friends and he's reminding them in that greeting, they're loved by God and they're loved by him. And there should be such comfort in that. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And I'm trying to practice answering my answering myself, asking myself questions about the text I'm reading. So my question was, why would you invite people? Why would you invite people you love of steer clear of things that wage against their soul. Think about that. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're my dear friends, and I want to urge you to steer clear, to abstain, to move away from, to keep at bay things that wage against your soul. You know, I have a personal example of this. A couple of weeks ago when I was um, doing a little bit of extra research on envy, when he said up there in the beginning, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Well, when I started thinking about envy, and I was thinking, I, I know what it does to me. At times, envy has been a, like a lion in my life. And by God's grace and consistent uh, diligence to practice the commands of Scripture, envy at times is like a small kitten, and I can turn and laugh at it. Because it does say in... First Peter chapter five, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And so as you stand against and so this is one for me personally, I was thinking, you know what? When they, when envy grips me and it, envy causes me to be so dissatisfied and envy wages war against my soul. I thought about my precious wife, and I'm thinking, you know what? She's a person too. I wonder, she probably has to deal with envy. And, and there, there was a sadness. I would think, wow, you know, and some of my friends, 
they must deal with envy too. And so here's Peter. Why would he say this? Because he loves these people and he's a human being and he's dealt with things. And so he doesn't want them to have anything in their life that would wage war against their soul. So dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from those things. Stay away from those things. Keep at bay those things that wage war against your soul. And the big picture, the objective of the, of the passages there is it's not just for you. It's because if you can, if you can abstain from these things that wage war against your soul, basically that are shrinking and limiting your life, something happens. It's in the next verse that you would live such good lives that people who are far from God, Peter uses the word pagans or Gentiles, people that are far from God would take notice of the life that you're living, the choices you're making, and people far from God would glorify God. So there's an effect, there's an objective of why he would tell the readers, why he would tell his dear friends that's one of the effects, certainly a high on his list, that God would be glorified and your life would be enlarged by uh, waging war or standing against those things that wage war against your soul. So let's just look at some of these words a little more carefully. Dear friends, I urge you, the word urge, parakaleo, it's a compound word made up of the word para and kaleo, and the word para means come alongside and the word kaleo is call. So it's to call to one's side. So he's urging them, in a sense, either calling them to his side or having them call God to their side to strengthen them and equip them to come alongside them in order to help them. Urging implies this earnest, passionate energy expressed in standing against trials and temptations that war against your soul. And shouldn't you, just like Peter, and shouldn't I, just like Peter, shouldn't we care for people who are in a battle for their soul and their souls being raged against and warred against? Yeah, we should respond. It should stir up in us compassion, not just empathy, but compassion that acts on people's behalf. So he's urging the believers here to exercise serious and relentless opposition to the power of sin. And so whether you're 16 or whether you're 60, whether you're 20 or whether you're 80, there will be a consistent and continuous standing against sin that wages war against your soul and against us. Do we need to just grit our teeth? Is that what he's saying? Just grit your teeth? Grit your teeth and you can stay away from what's on the outside. What do you do with what's on the inside? War, wages war against your soul. The stuff on the inside. What's that about? What's in you? What's in me? What's in us? And I ran across this uh, in my studies, ran across this phrase, 100% dependent and 100% responsible. And I thought, you know what? That sounds kind of familiar. It sounds a little bit what like I've been understanding from Scripture as I read Scripture 
that I'm 100% dependent on God for his strength to help me stand. And I'm 100% responsible for the choices I make in whether I'm standing correctly or incorrectly. Yes, you better grit your teeth. And yes, you better form a battle plan. So this urging to stand as aliens and strangers in the world against those things that wage war against your soul, form a battle plan. This isn't the first time Peter said something similar to this. Maybe you recognize that. I said, I, I thought I read this before. We'll look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. And then um, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And so I was noticing there are several times throughout the letter that Peter said something important and he wants to emphasize it and repeat it, not necessarily word for word, but the same idea. He already told them as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires. Now he's just saying the same thing in a different way. I urge you as alien and strangers to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Same idea. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled that you can pray. So you're exercising self-control. You're exercising your choice to abstain. Your choice to stand and hold things at bay that come at you. We'll continue to unpack the passage as it comes together. But this word that was interesting, I, I was wondering, even when I talked with you this morning, Gary, it just reminded me, what was Peter thinking? Okay, we mentioned, what, what was what were some of these people thinking when they, what are you thinking when you're studying your Bible and you put a note down there? Peter uses this word aliens and strangers. It's not the first time you find them in Scripture. The word aliens and strangers. So if you did a little research, you're going to find out that aliens is mentioned all the way back in Exodus, where it says about the early Hebrews, the early Hebrew people, the forefathers of and the ancestors of the people that Peter's writing to, it says they lived as strangers in the land of Canaan. Exodus 22 says, do not mistreat aliens or oppress them, for you were aliens in Egypt. Exodus 29.3, it says, Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know what it feels like to be an alien. Little bit of guess 19. Do not mistreat aliens. Love them as yourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 10, you are to love those who are alien. Deuteronomy 26, aliens will rejoice with you in the good things God has provided. So all of this could have been coming to his mind as he's thinking of what kind of terms, well, how can I define and describe the people I'm writing the letter to? They're precious people in the introduction in chapter one. He called them strangers scattered throughout, called them elect, called them chosen, called them a people of God. They're certainly all those things, aren't they? And then it comes to Ephesians chapter 19. When Paul was describing about the community, and he's saying you're no longer foreigners and aliens, 
but God's people, God's precious people. And so all that could have been in their background and also in the in the great chapter 11 of chapter um, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Where it says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They, they, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And so he's, he's connecting them with their heritage. He's connecting them because right now they're scattered. They're outcasts. They're kicked out. And he's reminding them as alien strangers, you're not the first Christians to have some difficulty. Get over it. I could hear that in his statement. I could hear that in his care for them. Because um, self-pity is one of those things that will bring you into a sinkhole. And you will spiral down. And so when he says, as aliens and strangers live, and he's telling them to live a certain way, and he's going to tell them how to live the whole rest of the letter, He's saying, you know what? Maybe they're starting down a sinkhole. So I'm going to remind them they're not the first ones. Strangers, all the way back to Genesis 23. Abraham said, I'm an alien and a stranger among those, these people. Psalm 39. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Wow, there's heritage here in these little words, aliens and strangers. I was listening to one story this week, and you don't want to try this one, but um, these, these young kids, teenagers are there, just come to Christ, and they were part of this evangelistic outreach. So what they did is they, they tried this hitchhiking evangelism. And uh, they didn't know a lot of the scripture yet. But uh, so this one driver picked him up and the guy says, well, where are you from? And the kid said, we are aliens. But because he was thinking he was quoting scripture and he thought it was a good thing. The driver dropped him off in about 100 yards. OK, so but how do you live as an alien and a stranger? The idea is to recognize there's a world system that is not God's system. There's a world system that is not built on God's principles, God's promises, God's word. And so he's telling them there's, as an alien and a stranger, you're living opposing to that. So you may feel really out of place sometimes down here. And just like it says in Psalm 39, for I dwell with you as an alien and a stranger. Psalm 68, 9, I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's son. For zeal for your house consumes me. Jesus quoted that. And when zeal for God consumes a person, you know what? They look kind of alien down here. They look kind of strange down here. And you might have found that even in your own relationships with people at different times in your life. The more passionate you burn for God, the more you want to go to God, the more it seems like unless other people around you are passionate for God, you can be kind of offensive to them. They can't quite understand you. You might look as, wow, you're an odd person. 
Well, in Psalm 119, it says this, I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. Matthew 25, Jesus said, I'm going to read that passage. Let's turn there quickly together. Matthew 25, because it's interesting to know that uh, Peter's dear friend, Jesus, the one that Peter denied and the one that Jesus uh, and then Jesus reinstated Peter. They had a very close relationship. And here Jesus in Matthew 25 and Peter would have been there listening to this message in Matthew 25. Jesus talking about the, the end times in verse 34, 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was a prisoner and you came to me. So we're instructed over and over through the Old Testament. Take care of aliens. Take care of strangers. And Jesus said, when I was a stranger, you invited me in. So when Peter tells these readers who are kicked out of their home, <laughs> cast away, chased away by the leaders of Jerusalem, many of their friends and loved ones killed. He calls them aliens and strangers. It's a precious term with deep heritage. And so as a Christian, you live here and I live here as aliens and strangers because this is not our home. There was a, a famous missionary. I can't remember his full name, Samuel. Um, and he, he arrived home on a ship the same year that coming home from Africa, um, Teddy Roosevelt was returning from Africa for three months of hunting big game. And on that ship was also this missionary from Africa returning home after serving a lifetime in Africa. And when they approached the shore, the missionary could see that all the crowds were gathered to welcome Teddy home, screaming and cheering. And, uh, he kind of had a little moment and said, Lord, there's nobody here to welcome me home. And then he heard the Lord whisper to him, you're not home yet. And this place is not our home. And so when Peter's encouraging these people that you are aliens and strangers, you know what? It means that you're going to have to stand up against some things that may appeal to you. You are an earthling. I am an earthling. And there are some things in this world that can appeal to us as earthlings that wage war against your soul. They appear nice. They appear friendly. They appear appealing on the external, but they wage war against your soul. And you need to abstain from them, stand against them. <clears throat> so, in chapter 1, verse 1, he calls them strangers. In chapter 1, verse 17, strangers. 2.11, strangers. They're exiles here because you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So these terms, these, these labels, if you will, the identification by why, how he's identifying them, these things are weighty. They matter. 
Do you know who you are? Are you living out who you are as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, as living stones, as aliens and strangers? Are you understanding your responsibility, our responsibility to stand against fleshly desires, earthly lusts, inward behavior, wage war against our soul and try desperately and effectively far too often to trip us up in our Christian walk. So because the result is how we respond is really telling in the next verse. Can the Gentiles, those who are far from God, can they look at our lives and are they going to say and want to praise God because of the lives we live? Do you see that there? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, it's, it's not for show. You're not living there in front of them so they can look at you. It's so that they can see your God in you and through you. He goes on in verse 16, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Live as servants of God. And so he's going to talk to them about their living anywhere, anytime, anyhow. To serve God and to serve other people by pointing to God that anywhere, anyhow, anytime, Gentiles may take notice. So this war, let's talk a little bit about that. Part of the war is cultivating an attitude and a mindset of an exile. I mean, that's a foreign concept to everyone in this room except possibly our African friends of what it means to live and cultivate a mindset of an exile. And John Piper made this statement. He says, what this mainly does is to sober us up, wake us up so that we do not drift numbly along with the world, drinking in the Kool-Aid, taking for granted the way the world thinks and the way the world acts as if there's no other way. And if that's the right way to put your priorities where the world puts its priorities, to put your value where puts its values. He says, we must not assume that what is on TV is helpful to our soul. We don't want to assume that what the world is selling and the world is promoting their strategies, their values, their priorities are helpful to your soul. We don't want to assume that the worldview of the world is God's worldview. We don't want to take for granted that the music and the media and the entertainment cares one lick for your soul. And if you take for granted, if we take for granted that that's the message of the world, then the, the war that's waging against our soul is winning. And we're going to be we're becoming numb to the culture and its evasive effect and the decay on our lives. First John 2.15, do not love the things of, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anything, anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the pride of life. These things are passing away. Um, I think about in uh, 1 John chapter 4, 
It says they're from the world and they don't listen to us. We're from God. We listen to God and we have God's worldview on things. We get our views. That's why we can be considered aliens and strangers on earth because heaven is our home and our marching orders are the scriptures, not the newspaper, not the horoscope, not Wall Street. We get our views and form our worldview from our heavenly home, from our blueprints, the Bible. We get our values and our morals and our principles from scripture. So when you see yourself as an alien, a stranger on earth, with your citizenship in heaven, and God is your king, and God your only sovereign, you stop drifting with the normal current of the surrounding culture. So it may remind them on their journey to where they're being sent, you're not going to fit in. Don't look for a home down here. Read through chapter 11 of Hebrews again. It'll remind you that people were longing for a home that was not here. When you live as an alien and stranger, you ponder from God's point of view what is good for your soul, what honors God, what glorifies God, glorifies God in every area of your life. So you would take every area of your life. And this is another a little quote from John Piper in one of his sermons on this particular text. He said, every area of your life, cars, food, movies, video, Internet use, finances, education, sports, medicine, laws, neighbors, people that don't know yet know God, foreigners, aliens that are immigrants from other countries, family, friends, work, recreation. You take every area of life and you look at it from God's point of view. That's how you begin to decipher what is waging war against your soul. Turn with me just briefly. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 13, or chapter 11, verse 13. I read that a little bit, but it would go on. It says, people who say such things, that they're living as aliens and strangers, verse 14, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have had an opportunity to return to it. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's how the Christians who went before these people lived. And that's how the Christians who went before us lived. They lived as aliens and strangers, outcasts. Let's take this word, the next word there, to abstain. John MacArthur asked this question. Do you want to put to death the things that wage war in your heart? Then stop entertaining them. Peter does not prescribe a program, therapy. He doesn't suggest that such sins are to be treated as an addiction, therefore not our responsibility in the new teaching of the world. If it's an addiction, of course, it's in a disease and you don't have any choice. No, he simply says abstain. He says quit, stop. This is many years ago, but... Uh, we were at a pastor's meeting, and they were 
talking about how how to deal with sin in a person's life. And they had this little clip from Bob Newhart. I don't know if some of you know who he is, some of you don't. I guess he used to be a comedian or he had a little TV show or something. It was the first time I was introduced to him, Bob Newhart. And so it was in a counseling setting that he was he was washing his hands and he went and sat down at his desk and in comes his client. And the lady said, well, should I lie down on the couch? He said, no, we don't do that anymore. I can handle this in about five minutes. Sit down. I'll give you two words that will help you solve your problems. And you tell me when you're ready. And, she's, and uh, he says, okay, I'll start the clock. Here's your two words. Or you explain, first, you explain to me a little bit about what's going on. And I'll give you the two words. So the lady started in our story. He says, stop it. And she, what? Stop it. And then she starts to ask, what do you mean? And he said, well, you can't. And then he says, I can't believe how many people ask me about this when I just say the simple word, stop it. If you're involved in behavior that is waging war against your soul and harming your walk with God, stop it. Stop it. That's what Peter's saying. That's what the word abstain means. The believer is to hold himself or herself, or herself away from the contact or influence with those things that wage war against your soul. Now, we all know if we've had any length of time standing against things that wage war against our soul, it may seem in reality not that simple. Just stop it. So what's going on? It's interesting. This same word used in other places in scripture. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. I'm going to wait a second, Tim, while you throw that one up there. So first Thessalonians chapter 2, or I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 22. This is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. I want to see if I got that right. Yeah. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. It's the same idea. Reject evil. Abstain from evil. And throughout scripture, you could find many, many places where you can turn to. And it's going to tell you, do not go this way. Do not walk in the way of the wicked. Put off. The old self. Can reckon yourself dead to sin. Rid yourself. Peter's already said that in chapter 2, verse 1. So how do you tap into God's power to walk this way? Because we can't do this on our own. That's obvious. But yet we're 100% dependent on God and 100% responsible. Here's some practical things. I think they were practical. That, that you can look at your life and you say, you know what, I can recognize some areas. And maybe we could ask the Holy Spirit to speak to each of our hearts and our minds and tap on our lives and say, here's an area where my soul is being waged against and I'm giving way to the world. First thing, just obey. Obey scripture. Flat out obey. Do what you're told. Take one small step at a time toward obedience. 
take a particular scripture and memorize it. Maybe it's this one. Dear friends, as aliens and strangers, abstain from those things that wage war against your soul. Memorize this scripture. Hide it in your heart. Hide it in your mind. Wake up with it in the morning. Think about it throughout the day. Go to sleep with it at night. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Pray. And then, like we talked about last week, find somebody in your life that you respect and submit yourself in an accountability relationship and say, can you check on me in this area because I'm working on this. And then practice, 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 practice daily, consistently. First Corinthians 10, 13, it tells us that no temptation overtaken us that is not common to all men, but God is faithful and he will give us a way out if we're bothering to look. Galatians 5, 16, keep in step with the spirit and you do not carry out the desires of the flesh. Philippians chapter 2, um, verse 12. <laughs> work out your salvation with fear and trembling for his work in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure and then 1 Corinthians chapter 10 15 9 and 10 um, yet I worked harder than them all Paul says so he's taking responsibility so I just you know I think about you know did Peter have gray hair at this time in the sense that he was he was thinking about his the people that were scattered? And he was saying, young man, lust is real. Young woman, sin is crouching at your door. It's desires to have you, but you must master it. You've been given by God the capacity for desire. It's a tremendous gift. It allows you to know that you're still breathing and you're still alive. But... You better govern it. You better guard it. You better, better submit it to God. Because that desire, which is neutral, it's interesting. Desire is a beautiful, powerful thing, but it's neutral. It's what you fix your desire on that causes the trouble. So this little phrase, this next little phrase, it says, wage war against your soul. And this isn't the only place this, is, this statement is made. In Romans chapter 7, you can find that one, Tim. Romans 7, 32. It says this. When Paul was talking about the battle between, between the, the flesh and the spirit. And he was going into chapter 7 and he said this. You probably have it up there. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 23. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war. Against the law of my mind. <clears throat> Not an easy thing to understand or even explain this spiritual warfare that goes on in your mind, in your heart, as you and I battle against the flesh. James chapter 4, verse 1. What does it say there? It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. Wow. Can anybody not understand what that means right there? You want something, but you don't get it. What rises up? 
envy, jealousy, lust, covetousness. They wage war. This, this idea of wage war that Peter uses here is carrying on a military campaign, serving as a soldier in active duty, performing military services. So they're when he's using this phrase that wage war against your soul, the idea is there, you have an enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And none of those three care at all about your future development in your relationship with God. They care to crush you. They care to squeeze that out. So used figuratively by Peter, it's here to communicate the battle that's going on for belief, which leads to behavior. The battle that takes place in the soul of the believer. There will be plenty of opportunities that the flesh will try to hinder your forward progress in God for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they form a relentless trio, very unlike the three stooges. The world, the flesh, and the devil are effective and crafty in destructing of positive principles and morals, godliness, holiness, Christianity. We need to wrap this up. And we didn't even make it to the next verse. So, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. I'm just going to skip to the end here because I discovered an amazing thing as I was studying this word soul. It's a difficult word to translate from the Greek. The Greek word is psyche, where we get the word psychology, the study of the mind. And the Greek word psyche, basically translated, means to breathe. Have we not heard that an awful lot lately in the last couple of weeks? To breathe? Look at what Peter is saying. If you and I delve into those lusts of the flesh, they wage war against our soul and they hinder our breathing. They hinder our living. This word soul, it's hard to translate that which breathes, the individual, the person, you, me, us. The word can have several meanings, and the context determines which is appropriate. It, it's translated heart, it's translated life, it's translated breath, it's translated mind, it's translated person. It's difficult to explain exactly what soul is, but basically, it's the being, whether human or animal, that consists more than just of flesh and bones, but it has the functioning capacity, the life, the essence, the principle that shows itself in breathing, the individual existence. So if something is waging war against your soul, it's to be taken with absolute seriousness because it's going to choke you. It's going to stop the life that God wants to bring about and flow out of you. So then as a Christian, you're claiming you're a Christian, but rather than living such a good life that the pagans recognize it, 
You're living such a life that is duplicity, double-minded, unstable in all our ways, blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. There's no stability. And rather than glorifying God, there's cause to mock God. So stop and examine. Stop, stop and evaluate. Ask God. Ask your spouse. Ask a person you respect. Where do you see the war in my soul? Where do you see me waging war? Where do you see the war waging itself on me? Ask yourself that. Where are you at in the war? And then to make a practical plan to change the choices, which then change your behavior. Whatever you're doing right now that is harming your life, stop it. Abstain from it. Again and again and again. Abstain from it. Stop it. Stop what's hindering a life that brings glory to God and live in such a way that people praise God because of the life you're living. That's what Peter's saying to these aliens and strangers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to look into it, to be challenged by it, to be instructed by it. I pray now that you'd help us to make practical application, that we wouldn't just hear words and we wouldn't just take in information, but we would look and see this war that rages in our soul, where the spirit wants one thing and the flesh wants another, and that we could ask you, Lord God, to enable us to trust you, to take responsibility for our minds and our behavior and our attitudes and lay them at your throne and be obedient and responsive to your word. And we're thankful, Father, for the ground that you're gaining each day as you move forward in our lives and draw us into an ever-deepening relationship with you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So, I've got one quick announcement. Before we... Uh,